Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendon. My essay this week is called The True End of True Prayer. It's based upon the lectionary reading for Sunday, February the 8th, 2015. One of my earliest memories is of my mother putting me to bed at night in my downstairs bedroom, then praying while she scratched my back. My mother had six children by the time she was 36 years old, and there she was doing the bedtime ritual with one of her youngest. Now I lay me down to sleep. In a ploy for more back scratching, sometimes I might advance to the Lord's Prayer, for that adult prayer, I aim for a greater gravitas with my little voice. There are critical questions and spiritual conundrums concerning prayer. Those are important and deserve our attention. Nonetheless, I still pray. Although I sometimes find it hard to pray, I generally find it impossible not to pray. Maybe I pray because of my mother's love, or because it's the so-called right thing to do for a Christian. I also pray because Jesus prayed. I go to bed early and get up early, so I resonate with Mark's Gospel from chapter 1, 29-39, where we read, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Luke includes this memory about Jesus in his gospel and adds several others. Luke describes how Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed, and that one time he went into the hills to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. Jesus prayed for Peter that your faith might not fail. He taught the disciples the Lord's Prayer. One of his parables taught us always to pray and never give up. In the last hours of his life, he prayed a great unanswered prayer, Let this cup pass from me. An excruciating prayer of dereliction, My God, why have you forsaken me? and a prayer for his executioners. Father, forgive them. In my own morning darkness, the house is quiet. I can hear the clock ticking and the furnace blowing. My neighbor starts his car at the same time every morning and leaves for work. The garbage trucks at the restaurant next door empty the dumpsters. At some point, our golden retriever starts to whimper, a signal that, the, that prayer is over and the day begins. My prayers are standard issue. I pray for family and friends, commending them to what Gerard Manley Hopkins called God's far finer and fonder care. I try to remember people with special needs. I pray for what Isaiah called God's awesome deeds we did not expect. 
I also tried to imitate the early desert monastics. In the book, The Sayings of the Desert Fathers, there's a story about Macarius the Great, who was born around the year 300. He was a former camel driver. One day, someone asked him how to pray. He responded, There is no need at all to make long discourses. It's enough to stretch out one's hands and say, Lord, as you will, and as you know, have mercy. And if the conflict grows fiercer, say, Lord, help. He knows very well what we need, and he shows us his mercy. About a hundred years later, in his book, Chapters on Prayer, Evagrius Ponticus offers this advice. Pray not to this end that your own desires be fulfilled. You can be sure they do not fully accord with the will of God. Once you have learned to accept this point, pray instead that thy will be done in me. In every matter, ask him in this way for what is good and for what confers profit on your soul. For you yourself do not seek this so completely as he does. When I'm really on my game, I aim for two things in prayer, candor and confidence. First, I try to be honest before God. It's not easy. Moving beyond pious platitudes, spiritual cliches, and tired habits is hard. So, I keep returning to that marvelous prayer that begins so many Anglican services, that before God all my thoughts are known and none of my secrets are hid. I might as well try to be honest. This might sound like the worst sort of exposure, but it's really an embrace. I can be my true and unadorned self before God. No editing required. <clears throat> this is why the Psalms are so instructive. All those prayers of discouragement and despair. Prayers about unanswered prayers. Questions about God's silence and absence. Prayers of imprecation against your enemies. Prayers of presumption that God is for us and against them. Prayers of manic praise. Prayers of wonder and gratitude. In short, prayers that run the gamut of human emotions. For some contemporary prayers of brutal honesty, I recommend the book Idiot Psalms, 2014, by the poet Scott Cairns. I pray with Peter, Lord, I'm a sinful man. I pray with Paul, who admitted that we don't know how to pray. I pray with Isaiah, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. I pray with the publican, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I definitely pray with the Gerasene demoniac, my name is Legion. All those voices in my head, crazy dreams, the time I waste, my obsessions and compulsions, my fears and worries. In prayer, we seek what John Cassian of the 5th century called integrity of heart, 
or integral wholeness. But when you're honest before God, that can feel far off. Here, for example, is Cassian's own self-diagnosis from his two books, Institutes and the Conferences. Lethargy, sleeplessness, unsettling dreams, impulsive urges, self-justification, seething emotions, sexual fantasies, pious pretense masked as virtue, self-deception, clerical ambition and the desire to dominate, crushing despair, confusion, wild mood swings, flattery, and the dreaded noonday demon of acedia, which is a wearied or anxious heart that suggests close parallels to what today we would call clinical depression. And then Cassian further admits that, quote, there are many things that lie hidden in my conscience, which are known and manifest to God, even though they may be unknown and obscure to me. And this, mind you, is a monk who had devoted his entire life to prayer. So, when I pray, I aim for candor. I try to keep it real, to be honest with myself <clears throat> and before God. To confess our Sunday Eucharistic prayer that we, quote, break this bread for our own brokenness. This isn't self-hatred or self-help. It's just acknowledging part of what it means to be human. And best of all, in a wonderfully felicitous phrase, Cassian says we admit our brokenness, quote, without any obfuscating embarrassment. When I pray, I also try to be confident. That is, to remember that I'm loved. 1 John 3 reminds us, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. And in Romans 8, Paul reminds us, Nothing can separate us from God's love. For those of us who like to earn our way or prove ourselves to God, to ourselves, and to others, it's hard to do nothing at all but accept God's love. Edwina Gately's beautiful poem is full of wise advice. She writes, Be silent, be still, alone, empty before your God. Say nothing, ask nothing, be silent, be still. Let your God look upon you, that is all. God knows, God understands. God loves you with an enormous love and only wants to look upon you with that love. Quiet, still, be. Let your God love you. Yes, God is infinite and wholly other, and therein lie the mysteries of prayer. 
But in his own prayers, Jesus reminds us that God is also intimate. Abba, like a loving father. To experience God's love is the true end of all true prayer. Paul prays for the Ephesians that, being rooted and established in love, you may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. And so, says the English mystic Juliana of Norwich from the 15th century, the greatest honor we can give Almighty God is to live gladly because of the knowledge of his love. For books this week, I review a new book by Amy Wilentz. It's called Farewell Fred Voodoo, A Letter from Haiti. New York, Simon & Schuster, 2013. This book is 329 pages. This book should be required reading for anyone who wants to go to another country to help them, or who has tried that and needs help interpreting their experience. Amy Wilentz has written about Haiti for 30 years. She's fluent in Creole. This is her third book on what she calls that post-apocalyptic dystopia, where three-quarters of the population lives on less than $2 a day, and most people are illiterate. It's set in 2011, after the catastrophic earthquake in 2010. Amy Wilentz is a professor in the Literary Journalism Program at the University of California in Irvine. The Fred Voodoo of the title refers to the average Haitian, whatever that might mean, onto whom an outsider projects all sorts of stereotypes, presumptions, ignorance, and paternalism, and then extrapolates all sorts of crazy conclusions. Good intentions are not enough, says Wilentz. She's become cynical about all the do-gooders who rushed into Haiti after the 2010 earthquake. She deplores their condescension filled with pity. She questions the sketchy motivations of people and organizations, missionaries, huge NGOs, telecommunication and mining companies, Bill Clinton, and Sean Penn. She wonders just how much good and bad is really done in Haiti. Wilentz admits that she has a jaundiced view of these matters after 30 years, and maybe even a very hard heart. To her credit, she does not give herself a free pass. She questions her own motivations, is she a disaster junkie? <coughs> Does she somehow need to write about Haiti to feel good about herself? Might her books just be more poverty pornography? She profits from writing about Haiti, 
but has her writing really helped her beloved Haitians? In addition to her hundreds of personal anecdotes across 30 years, her memoir includes enough Haitian history, culture, language, and geography to elucidate the larger complexities of the country, beyond whatever mixed motives people might have. This is a book written with authority, affection, and sensitivity for its subject. I couldn't put it down. Amy Wolentz, Farewell Fred Voodoo, A Letter from Haiti. For movies this week, I review Birdman from 2014. I almost skipped this movie after a friend described it as a sort of magic realism. But I watched it because it's by one of my favorite directors, Alejandro Gonzalez Iñárritu, who made Amores Peros, 21 Grams, Babel, and then Beautiful. And I'm glad I did watch it. Riggan Thompson, played by Michael Keaton, is a Hollywood has-been who made millions as an apocalyptic superhero called Birdman. He also lost his soul doing that. So now, Thompson is trying to do something meaningful to boost his self-esteem, to direct and star in a Broadway rendition of a Raymond Carver play. As if an aging actor's low self-esteem was not bad enough, real life in the Sethsbian world, where actors make a living by pretending to be someone else, looks even worse. In Inyaritu's hands, reality and imagination merge in Birdman's past and present. As Anthony Lane put it, it's bad enough to dread being a nobody, but worse still, what it can take to be a success in the eyes of others. Birdman, 2014, by Alejandro Gonzalez Inyaritu. And finally, for poetry this week, we've published a marvelous poem by Maya Angelou. It's called Alone. <clears throat> Lying, thinking last night how to find my soul a home where water is not thirsty and bread loaf is not stone. I came up with one thing, and I don't believe I'm wrong that nobody but nobody can make it out here alone. Alone, all alone, nobody but nobody can make it out here alone. Maya Angelou in the poem, Alone. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, February the 8th, 2015. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.